Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Reasonable Doubt podcast, Ah, our season finale. My name is Rob Rosen. I am the creator and executive producer of Reasonable Doubt. And my name is Detective Chris Anderson. I'm a retired homicide investigator and the co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. Well, we went out with a bang, that is for sure. A a pretty powerful and emotional investigation. We're going to get into all of that. But first, as we say every week, if you have not watched the episode yet, Please pause the podcast, watch the show, the Lee Harris case, and then come back because all we're going to do is spoil it for you. So you've been warned. Um, Tough case. This was a tough week. To say the least. (laughs) It was, uh, gosh, going back and replaying this week. uh, It was it was very tough. This is probably another one of those cases this week where I know everybody wanted to kill me. Um, But. You know, there's so much involved in this case. There's a lot of different um, suspects. There's a lot of different police officers, a lot of statements that are taken. He said, she said, there's, it, it just was a lot to take in that week to really get down to what we needed to make our decision. So I think that we kept going back and forth all throughout the week. Right, Chris? I mean. Yeah, this, this one was a. Um... This one was a huge back and forth between you and I. I mean, there was a lot of information to digest, you know, and plus the fact that we, you know, this is one of those cases that there was a lot of information, which is something that doesn't usually happen when we have these cases that are more than 20, 25 years old, you know, 30 years old. You know, we don't get a lot of information. Well, this one, we got a lot of information and plus there was a lot to digest in it. So, yeah, we had to keep constantly talking to each other. Well, what did you get here? What did you see here? This is what I see. There was a lot of back and forth between Fatima and I, but I, I think we, uh, we, we, we came to the conclusion that we came to because of for good reason. All right. We've got a lot to talk about in this case, but before we dive in, let's just give you a little bit of a refresher on the Lee Harris case. June 18th, 1989. Chicago's upscale Gold Coast neighborhood. 1.33 a.m. 
24-year-old Dana Feitler is in the lobby of her high-rise apartment building. Suddenly, a group of men storm in and kidnap her. Witnesses see three men leading Feitler through the streets of Chicago. She's finally taken to an ATM and forced to withdraw $400. She's then led into an alley and shot in the head. Feitler never regains consciousness and dies 21 days later. Four months after she dies, police make an arrest and it's someone they know well. An informant named Lee Harris who lives in a nearby Cabrini Green housing projects. Investigators had been talking to 34-year-old Lee Harris for weeks until finally they had enough Thursday afternoon to arrest him for murder and robbery. 1992. Harris's trial finally begins. He admits he made incriminating statements to the police, but he claims they fed him the information and he simply repeated it. The reason? He wanted to collect the $25,000 reward money. The jury doesn't buy it and convicts Lee Harris for Dana Feitler's murder. He is sentenced to 90 years behind bars. None of the other men who abducted Feitler are ever charged. So I wonder if you guys could talk about that for a second, because I think no matter what, even though you decided that you really couldn't help Jermaine and Bob in this case, the idea that we know that there were three or four people who were involved in this murder and somehow the only person doing time is Lee Harris, uh, that just feels like politics needed to be swept under the rug. Somebody needed to take the fall. Sounds like it to me. I won't. You know, I hate you know, making it that easy to, to me in this case, that this is not justice for Dinah Feitler or her family. You know, somebody, there were multiple people that were involved in her murder and they all should, should be responsible, be held responsible for what they did. You know, Lee Harris being the only person. And we know because you, if you follow the, the independent witnesses in this case, they all stated that there were multiple people and Lee, even in his admission, he says that there were other people that were involved. So no, this is not just, this is not justice for the family. And they had potential other suspects who were mm-hmm. involved, people who didn't pass lie detector tests, people who were implicated by other people. And somehow once they got Lee Harris, it's as if, Obviously, they tried to chase those other suspects, but kept coming across roadblocks. But despite all that, it's like the investigation concluded after Lee Harris was arrested. That was it. They didn't need anybody else. And this is a huge injustice to Feitler's family. So let's talk about this reward. I thought it was really fascinating that someone could, you know, potentially, at least this is the story that was told to us, could incriminate themselves in order to try to get a reward a con man, a hustler, whatever you want to call it, who was willing to say and do anything for money. Have you run into stuff like this before in your career where, where, where people are literally implicating themselves for a crime because they want to get some uh, reward money? I've never had a case where they implicated themselves in the murder. And, and Lee did it. You know, he if if he if he was lying just to get a reward, then he did a hell of a job because his interview, his interrogation, the, the, his confession or his admission in this case was 
damaging. It was really, really bad. I mean, and, and you just can't have it both ways either. That's another thing that I that I, I keep that keeps running through my mind. You know, Lee made mention that they fed him all of this information and, and, you know, he gave a false confession. Well, you know, most of the time when we have false confessions, it's usually a person that is of lower IQ. Lee, by no means, is a person that is of lower IQ. So you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't be smart enough to concoct a scheme in order to to fool a bunch of law enforcement officers into giving him twenty five thousand dollars on one hand. And then on the other hand, say that he's uh, of lower IQ and he didn't know what he was saying. And he ended up talking himself into prison. I just I just have problems with that. So let's talk about an elephant in the room. <laughs> Chris and I probably although we disagree on a lot of, you know, uh, certain aspects of the cases in the end, when we do come together on them, uh, we, we likely for the most part, see eye to eye. I'd like to make the confession that this, this case was very rough for both of us. Um, ultimately I respect my partner's decision on it. I stand by it because I think that the self implication in this is, um, it's such an error that could be reversible as far as for an appeal. But from the start, I have always had a problem with this, with this idea that a murder happens and two officers who work these project areas go to their informant, who they always go to, to help them, trusted Lee Harris, and they begin to talk to him and tell him about a reward. And slowly he starts to make his way into the case so that he could get this reward. And I find it difficult to believe in the end that he is the person who perfetrated this crime. Uh, I, I, I still find now it when difficult. You, now, when you say, when you say perpetrate, um, do you mean being one of the four or pulling the trigger? I honestly mean even being one of the four. I agree that he has talked his way into this case so much that there could be, it, that it is to the point where I, I don't think an appeal is going to work just by saying uh, you know, that he was forced to do it. And here's the thing, we don't have any evidence that he's forced to do these things. This case is actually very different from a lot of our cases in that there's no, although, there, and in the case, obviously we'll get into it. I got to sit down with Anthony, who was the victim's friend. He endured um, some terrible things at the hands of the police, obviously them wanting him to make a false confession. But that's not the case that, that we see for Lee. The difference with Lee was he had such great relationships with these police officers, such long-term relationships. He had helped them in apparently like over 80 drug case convictions. I mean, he was somebody they knew well, especially the two officers working the project area, that they went to him because that's how much they trust him. So his case, I think, was different in that I, I, I personally believe he trusted these officers far too much. And then when they passed him on to other detectives, those other detectives built on that trust that they had with him. They put him up in a, in a home to keep him safe. They, um, they put him up in a hotel. They treated him to lunches. I mean, for months, th this man is their best friend. And I find it difficult to believe that at any time, uh, at any point during that time, they believed that he was actually their prime suspect. What starts to happen later, and we'll get into more, is he's digging himself. And I think at that point, uh, I don't know if police officers just aren't holding one another accountable or they're not communicating well, but I think at that point they start to think, wait, he's saying things that possibly implicate him in this. But I, I do stand by, and there, there's 
the possibility here that um, interaction after interaction with these officers, with him, different officers, giving him, providing him different information, what he sees in the news, what he hears through the projects, because there are people talking about this murder. I do think it's possible that he put together a lot of this information to eventually get to this final statement that is the nail in the coffin for him. But even then, it's not totally perfect with the crime scene. There's still issues, but he's putting himself enough at the scene. But Chris, I mean, you had informants when you were uh, a homicide detective, correct? Oh, yeah. Still have them. So, so, you, so you had informants, and Lee Harris is put up in a hotel because he seems to have valuable information. And at some point, at least the police version of this, they're starting to realize, wait a minute, our informant really could be our suspect. Mm-hmm. From your point of view, is there really any reason to look at this uh, side-eyed or is it just what it seems to be? To me, that signifies that they trusted Lee Harris. They believed in what he was saying. They didn't think he was a suspect because, man, you could. there are so many problems if they see, uh, if anybody could question the fact that you put a suspect in a crime that you believe was a suspect in a crime into a hotel room and not in jail. So, yeah, yeah. I don't believe that they thought until the very last minute, until right after they put him in, in jail, even though he said some things earlier that I thought implicated him in the crime. And, you know, they may have had thought about it, but, you know, they didn't put him in jail. They let him go. So, so maybe this is a, maybe this is having a defense attorney and a homicide detective on a show together. Right. Fatima, you say that Lee Harris may have trusted the cops too much, but it's very possible that, as Chris says, the cops trusted him too much. Right. We Absolutely. We don't know. My issue is the odds, and we've always talked about this. What are the odds that these two officers in the project say, hey, we know a guy that we trust who's our informant. Let's go to him and ask him if he knows anything about it. And in the end, that's the exact person who was part of this crime. I mean, not to mention that later, so they they do that first interview with him. It doesn't go anywhere because his evidence and, and the story he tells, it doesn't fit with the crime scene. So detectives are like, no, that doesn't work. So he's he's off, like Lee's off the hook. He's doing his own thing. What happens next? They don't approach him. He goes to them. He goes back to those same police officers working the projects and says, hey guys, I need a favor. I think I might've missed a court date, right? Because he had had priors and he was out on parole or he was released, but he still had court dates. So he goes and he says, I think I may have missed a court date. Can you guys help me out? And that's when they tell him, yeah, we could help you out, but we're also going to need the truth out of you on this because when you came to us and you gave us information on that case, it didn't, it didn't match. So now he implicates himself a little more, tells a different story. So for me, it's more the odds of this, right? These two officers just so happen to pick the guy that did it. And that guy's dumb enough that when he stops being looked into, he goes back to them. Like how dumb can Lee Harris be? Like you said, Chris, he doesn't have a low IQ. This is someone who possibly could get off the hook as even being a participant in this. And so when they do question him and he doesn't give a good story, they let go and he approaches them again later. Who's dumb enough to do that? Well, one thing that we do know about Lee Harris, and everybody agreed on this one thing, is he loved money. And Chris, I want to play this clip of an interview you did with uh, Bob Signoretti, who was a beat cop who knew him. I understand that you were one of the first people to interview Lee after the murder. Uh, Yes. We uh, told him that there might be a reward. And then his eyes went real big when we said that. Really? We asked him if he ever heard anything to let us know. And he says, okay. Did you ever think that he may be involved in the murder? No. 
Never thought it. It didn't even cross our mind. So Lee's son and close friend, they're convinced that Lee and a couple other guys robbing a woman for 400 bucks, that's way too small time for him. Is there any truth to that? He was selling burn bags for five, ten dollars. He'd be so happy if he had four hundred dollars. Yeah. So, Signorelli, uh, he 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 offered a, a different side of the investigation. You know, it lets me know that they didn't they didn't really think Lee could be involved until after until after he started implicating himself in the crime. You know, so yeah, and and I mean, they, they, throughout the entire case, everybody, I think the, the majority of the people that were on the law enforcement side of this case, I don't think that they really thought. Lee was the person that could have been responsible for this murder. I, and I don't think that he's responsible for the murder, but with the the, the the admissions that he made, you know, he had, I just feel like he was there. It's, and it's really detailed, right? I mean, just yeah. to be clear. So the audience, I mean, obviously we weren't able to show it all. It's a really long blow by blow description, starting with uh, we're trying to rob some people down in Boys Town. And then we go to a private high school where there's some computers. And he uh, talks about couldn't... doing the burglary. He talks about it, that uh, that the, one of the guys that was involved in the murder hands him over the gun and he was supposed to go and do a robbery. And then he gets scared and gives a gun back. And then he thinks he's talking about how he's going to burglarize the school for the computers. And then he comes right back. And he also says that then he sees the the, the, the other guys that were involved in this murder walking around, walking down the street with Feitler. And he follows them along because he wanted his cut. You know, he talks about the place that they murdered her. He describes it. He gives a, a description of a black uh, uh, garage door that was there and the ivy that was uh, uh, growing up on the wall. These are details that, that you just you know, can't be... Yeah, it's, he could have known in other ways, though, right? There's the, by then, they had already taken him to the scene once before. Um, I, I'm just stating, once but, again, I, I, I agreed with the outcome. He dug himself too deep. It's, you know, irreversible error. But at the end of the day, those things could be explained absolutely by being told possibly different stories by the people, different officers you trust who are allowing you. Or, in they, or you could be or you could be as, uh, as a, a part of this murder as anybody else. Right. But a lot of that was detail that nobody could verify. Also, a lot of that is detail that he could have just been a really great storyteller. And one thing that the other the officer you spoke to said was he's a con artist. He's a con man. And we know those people are really great storytellers. Right. So in my version of the events, ultimately, he's trying to continuously change his story to match as much as possible or else he knows he's not going to get the 25 grand. And then at a certain point, he's so in deep and they have no other suspects. And he's the main guy who's been, you know, kind of dangling them for months now. Um, And he's been on their dime, staying at a hotel, eating every day, everything on their dime. I think one officer even brings them groceries at some point is helping him out. And so at a certain point, it's not impossible that they started to tell him, hey, listen, if you don't get the story straight and tell us exactly how it went down, you're going to be charged. And now the 25 grand is out the window, but he's trying to cover his own but but, but we making we're making but, arguments that that Lee, Lee never said that they told him that if you don't make that if you don't get this story straight we're going to do this to you he never said that but i guess for me it was really very difficult 
to get over the fact that this very, very detailed confession came after he had been charged with murder. And it was obvious that there was no more reward dangling out there. So to me, it was it became grasping at straws to try to give him motivations that even he didn't say he had um, to explain why he would give such a detailed confession at that point. Well, and all I can say is as a defense attorney, it's it's absolutely normal for a defendant client, and Chris knows this also, that even after being arrested and charged, they can begin to dig themselves deeper into a case if they hope or if, if somehow they're being told that, you know, we need to get the other individuals. It, basically, this happens all the time with co-defendants, two people who are at a scene who could possibly be committing the crime together. One turns on the other and gives, you know, information that officers need. That person's going to get a better deal. And I, I personally feel that could have been what was happening here. But I guess so, the disconnect. Kind of, but I guess the disconnect. You see, you guys really are hearing what was going on in the Chicago <laughs> hotel room. But I mean, I think that the the disconnect is that he doesn't say that. And in fact, when he, um, Chris was interviewing him, his arguments were more uh, counterfactual, where he was claiming that he didn't say what he had said. Mm-hmm. Right. So he wasn't even yeah. making any of those arguments. He was just right. kind of um, right, denying. But, but and we know it's there. We know that we know well, the relationship do, well, with him and the officers were there. We know we well, see we, it. Yeah, but it's but it's look, it's entirely plausible, I think, based on the uh, on the overall 30,000 foot view of the evidence that it's the cops who are betrayed. You know, here was an informant. By the way, Lee Harris, we didn't even have a chance to get into it. At one point as a publicity stunt, a former mayor of Chicago had moved into Cabrini Green and Lee, who is a charismatic, charming guy actually became friends with this mayor. Lee had a way of talking his way into a lot of things and not just not just prison. And he does say in his interview, he trusted these people. He does say that, Mm -hmm. that he trusted these officers. Sure. And And maybe they that that goes a long way. And maybe they trusted him. yeah, that's what I was about to say. I think they trusted him too. They trusted it, like him I to said, be the pawn is what they trusted. But anyway, I mean, so why would you? <laughs> I just don't. You know, look, hey, I've said this time. Look at the end of the day. I, this I, is what I, I tell my clients: help me help you. He he denied an attorney in the end. He denies. They they tell him before you write this statement: do you want to have an attorney present? No. I mean, ultimately, look, Lee, I can't help you if you don't want to help yourself. But I I got really great arguments for you here, man. But why is there a presumption that the that something went wrong on the on the cop side in this case? Because I'm just not seeing it. And even the defendant's not saying it. So he may not say those things on record in fear of, well, now he's behind bars and nobody wants to have that reputation. But the reality is through the records and everything else, it's there. There's a relationship of trust between both parties. And so I, once again, mine is solely based on the fact that I think the odds are that they came after the inform. They go and find this informant just to get tips out of him. And suddenly in the end, he's the actual, one of the actual perpetrators. I think the odds are just real small. I mean, we're talking two new police officers who never even worked homicide. I just think with all the compromise and the closeness of relationships in this, that it is, it's, uh, an, it, this is a problem waiting to happen uh, for anyone who's willing to, to sell themselves out for some money. Well, I do think, I mean, I do think that you can do in any kind of a case, uh, the confirmation bias afterwards of like, what are the odds, right? Things, weird things happen. It is someone, someone, is going to be at a nightclub when someone is shot. What are the odds that it's them? What are the odds? All right, so 
hanging over this case, even though Lee Harris himself uh, really didn't bring it up as a factor, was corruption within the Chicago PD. So Fatima, you had a very powerful interview with someone who chose to be identified as Anthony. He was one of the last people to see Dana Feitler alive. He was a good friend of hers. He is an African-American male. And he went to the PD to try to give them some information about what he knew about the case. And all of a sudden, he finds himself a suspect. They busted into my apartment two, three o'clock in the morning. I was sleeping in bed and they just got me up out of bed and say, get out, you know, start calling me the, you know, a half breed, inward, the whole nine yards. Um, yeah. It's tough, yeah. So it takes me down to the precinct or whatever. And I say, well, why am I here? I'm not in my clothes. Wait a minute. They didn't even let you get dressed? No, no, no. You're no. at the police station in your underwear. Yes. And I noticed that they turned the air conditioners very high. So I'm literally shivering. Um, mm. I know it's probably really difficult. Yeah. Take your time. He says, what are you doing with a white girl who's rich? All of a sudden, he gestured his hand at me as if he were going to smack me if I say anything, just be quiet. I, I can remember it as if it were yesterday. At some point when you're in that room and you're being treated like this, does it go through your mind that I could be convicted for killing my friend? Worse, I can be dead. Oh, yeah, this interview was very heartbreaking. Anthony, it's been years and years. And Anthony is a lot of trauma. Re he was reliving it while we were sitting there. We needed to take quite a few breaks for him. It was tough. And, and hearing it was really hard. What he went through was awful. And, and nobody should ever be subjected to that. He was a friend to Miss Feitler. And uh, it, it's it's scary to know that that happens. And I think that's my issue throughout this case is one, this, this happens more often than people think, right? This, this, there's always going to be bad apples. We've all discovered that in the past few years, if you have access to any kind of social media, you realize that not all police officers are good police officers. Not all of them are searching for truth. Uh, some are abusing their power. But uh, I, that was very difficult to conduct that interview and hear what happened to him. And I absolutely believed him. You know, his his listening to his interview, it was very compelling. You know, um, he I, I do feel as though as long as my partner says that she felt as though he was very compelling. then yeah, I'm a believer. You know, uh, I, I know her and I trust her. I know what she, I know that she doesn't go into any of these interviews lightly. You know, so I, I hate that that happened for him. And I hate that this happened for the fight, the family, you know, that they, they, they ju just no matter how this case turns out or no matter what happens from this point on, justice has not been served in this case. And I'll say that to the day I die. I think it, I, I guess I'm just not surprised by the fact that the lead detective in this case, not not one of them who allegedly mistreated Anthony, um, but definitely that lead detective subordinates, um, that this lead detective in the case overall goes on to Guantanamo Bay and, and assisting there is, is quite suspicious. But um, I, I do just think it speaks volumes about possible strategies used in that department. 
And it is interesting and it is worth noting that Lee uh, said that he met Richard Zuli, the one who went over to Guantanamo that you're alluding to, and he said he was approachable. It was nice. Oh, he and Zuli uh, had, uh, Zuli went to meet him at the hotel and took him to lunch. You're listening to the Reasonable Dad podcast. We're discussing the Lee Harris case. Coming up, Chris goes one-on-one with Lee Harris, and we're going to hear from Jermaine, uh, Lee's son, who's going to give us updates on the case. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to the Reasonable Doubt podcast. We are discussing the Lee Harris case. Chris, you finally got a chance to talk one-on-one with Lee. And just like his son, Jermaine, he's a very charismatic guy. But it did seem like you guys were arm wrestling a bit. It did seem like Lee was trying to play word games, like, you know, whether or not he was an informant. At what point did you become an informant for law enforcement? They call it informant. I call it trying to help the community change its image. So, okay. Did you have law enforcement officers that came to you about some of the crimes that were happening in the community? Yes, yes, all the the time. Then let me ask this again. Were you an informant? Yes, but Chris, I hate to use that word. Okay. At that time, I didn't see them as police officers. I consider us as being friends then. Yeah, you know, I'm sure some of the things that he may have been going back and uh, talking to law enforcement officers about were uh, truly just because he wanted to help the, the neighborhood out. But I mean, you know, it's indicative of a of an informant when you have outstanding warrants or missed court date. You know, if you have a relationship with some law enforcement officers, you've given them some information, you go back to those law enforcement officers uh, to get them to help you. That's, that's, that's just how the relationship works. But Chris, um, was it? does it tell you anything as a homicide investigator when you're interviewing a suspect or a convict in this case? And there's a little bit of like playing around with words instead of just saying, yeah, I was an informant. You had to do all that uh, arm twisting to get there. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you'll have people that will try to uh, do the the arm, the arm wrestling, as you say, uh, that, that and they're trying to lead you down another path. I can't I can't honestly say that I think Lee in this case was doing that. But, uh, you know, so, sometimes it does happen. I personally feel he did that in this instance because it, it's covering his own ass. I mean, ultimately, he's twisting it to say he was trying to protect his community. And this is because we know the reputation that informants have and the way people. Especially, them especially and, with them being in prison. You know, absolutely. yeah, I, I think I think. So that, yeah. 
I, I so could, why did I, he do why did he do the same thing when you asked him about shoplifting as a kid? You had to arm wrestle to get that out of him. Right. So yeah, did he minimize certain things when we talked on over the phone? Yeah. And 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 it kind of hurt. It kind of it really actually kind of threw me off because I knew with the Lee Harris interview, we didn't have that much time. So um I, I think we had to, if I remember that interview correctly, we had to skip around to a lot of stuff. And and yeah, he minimized a lot of the things that were happening. But then again, yeah, I, I still don't I don't think that he was trying to um to do it with the same intent that a lot of the convicts that we talked to over the phone do it. Ultimately, you know, he's rumored to be a con artist. So I, I guess part of the things he says is probably just hit in hopes that he can portray himself as best as possible. But yeah, I mean, it was also now that you're, you're mentioning the whole thing of a uh, con man or hustler. That was another debate that you guys got into. It was weird. He seemed like he got hung up on, on words and and you had to go through this sort of like 30 or 45 seconds circular argument to get him to say yeah okay i was a con man yeah yeah you, you know he definitely deflected and and i do agree that you know he a lot of it was you know i want to show myself in the best light i don't yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't shoplifting but i was taking things out of different stores and things of that nature no i wouldn't uh, I wasn't an informant, but I just told police things just to make the neighborhood better. Yeah. Yeah. He, he deflected a lot of that stuff. And, you know, but I, I can't none of that played into my decision, the confession or not the confessions, but the admissions that he made for me that just didn't sit well. You know, on one hand, he's saying that, you know, I was only doing this for the, to get the reward. But then on the other hand, you know, he goes into serious details about what happened that night and how things happened, how everything transpired. Well, I think that the uh, the one thing that everyone can agree on in this case is it was just such a horrific murder. I mean, she is taken from the lobby of her condominium uh, after celebrating about getting into graduate school. She's uh, walked to an ATM machine, taken to an alley, and apparently, at least according to Lee Harris's confession, um, has to sit there with a gun to her head as two men debate whether to rape her or shoot her. So um, devastating. We actually went and one night and uh, went to the scene. Drove through the scene. And yeah, it was, you know, you see the apartment building where she lived and Gosh, it was kind of haunting because they still have the mailboxes right there in the front. There was a little lobby in between two doors and the second door was locked. So she's in that front lobby checking her mail when these men come in and begin to take her. And that front door was never locked. Now the building, they, they redid it. So you still see the mailboxes there, but now that front door is locked. You need a key just to get in to deliver the mail. And it, it's so sad because something just as small as that makes such a difference for a person's safety, right? And she just, she, she's standing there reading her mail and has no idea what's about to happen. And it's really tragic what did happen to her. I can't imagine imagine how terrified she was. Ah, yeah, they, it, it, it really is heartbreaking. Well, guys, uh, we're going to get an update on Lee and the case. Uh, joining us right now is Lee's son, Jermaine. Jermaine, how's it going? I'm, I'm going right real. How's it going? What's going wow. on, Jermaine? Hi, it's Jermaine. good to see you, man. What's going on, Chris? What's going on, Fatima? <laughs> good, man. We're good. So how are things going with your father? Y'all still doing that Wednesday night uh, football Man, it, it, actually, he called me about 10 minutes ago. So <laughs> I talked to him yesterday and then talked to him twice today already. How's he doing? 
And he's doing great. Um, something pretty funny is like the day he goes to court, he has a court date two days after the episode airs. What's the court date for? about? Um, so uh, his lawyer is doing his post conviction, and they found a, they found a bunch of things they're working on, and they're they're going through the hearing process to get. She wants uh, she's working to present some things for the judge to try to get him out. Just trying to get him get him home as soon as possible. That's good, man. How are you holding up? I, I'm actually doing pretty well. Um, my neighborhood is it, it's been a kind of funny, like in Cabrini Green, it's been a kind of a weird couple of weeks. We actually had like the taste of Cabrini Green last week, where we pretty much had food vendors. Uh, the new movie Candyman comes out, the remake from the one 30 years ago, and that you was know. actually that was actually filmed in the neighborhood. So you know, they, that was the way that and Rob were uh, in our Kelly songs. That was the first time that I ever heard of Cabrini Green uh, uh, projects. But uh, yeah, that that's scary and good at the same time, I guess. Jermaine, what I mean, what are your thoughts now? It's been a while. You've you've been able to take in a lot of what we said at that table that day. What? How are you feeling about the things that Chris and I brought to you? Oh, I, I, first off, I'm very appreciative of it. Uh, I can definitely tell the amount of legwork you guys did to, to dig into some things that that probably pretty much been on the surface, but like no one actually took the time to dig into. Um, from both sets of like from both points of view, from the legal point of view, from you, also from the law enforcement point of view, from Chris, like when when you take the time you soak it in, you kind of see how my dad kind of put himself into a pretty big bind that he probably didn't see was coming, and then you can see the things that. Like, so you can see, I get to see it from all perspectives. Um, my opinion never going to change. Like, I still believe in my dad. I still going to believe he didn't do what he said he didn't do. But in terms of the legal angles and then in terms of how law enforcement does things, like, so just being able to take it in and being witness to both perspectives, it was just, a, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. And you know, Chris and I will never, as, as we said across from you, wouldn't sit there and say your dad did this, that, that and, you know, that's something we couldn't say. It is unfortunate how much he talked himself into it, and it's, it's very unfortunate that he's the only one they they settled on. They, yeah, it's so sad that, that we know there were more men, and even mm-hmm. if your dad was there, uh, they were satisfied with that that one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, that, just knowing that that like you guys can look me straight in the face and be like, "All right, we can't say that he did this," and the reason why you guys came to the decision you guys made on that was also it was also fair. So, like, I definitely feel that in terms of feeling like the, the one thing I just always wanted to come out was people to realize that my dad didn't get a fair shake. And mm-hmm. so and that I, I believe that's definitely going to come out. So, mm-hmm. no. Uh, so, yeah, Jermaine, I, I feel the same way, man. We, we couldn't sit across from you and, and say that, you know, like like we do so many times on Reasonable Doubt and say that, you know, your father is absolutely guilty of, 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 of uh, you know, of, of murdering the, the victim in this case, you know, but I don't think I will say this. I don't think that justice was served, especially for her family, because there are multiple people that are still out there that was just as involved in this case as anybody else was that got convicted of it. So, you know, I hate that for him. I hate that for her, especially. But uh it's good to see that y'all still have a good relationship. What about Bob? Uh, uh, you still hear from him? Um, yeah, we actually talked to Bob. Uh, me and Bob, are, he's still my friend, but like I'm kind of upset he's not here right now. Um, <laughs> he, I don't, I don't understand. I don't. He, he was more. I don't know because he works a lot. And he's down in Texas, so it might be the heat. Yeah.
I was just going to say, you know, it's uh, you're really lucky to have to have Bob in your corner. He, he really considers all the evidence in, in the case and takes it very seriously. And he's a great fighter on behalf of your dad. Yeah, I, I tell him all the time. He's a great friend. What you doing for my dad is like it's a special place in heaven for guys like you. Like you didn't have to do any of this. You don't have to fight. You don't have to. Like he has sleepless nights. He gets upset over over. He gets upset over court case continuances. So like we've, we've had a few continuances since the show, and every time like they continue the case, he's upset because he wants it to be over. You know, one of the things that really struck me about you is the lack of bitterness. When you were talking about police, you were telling Fatima at one point, despite all your experiences, we need to show more respect for the police. Even though Chris and Fatima didn't tell you exactly what you wanted to hear, you seemed like you were grateful for the time they spent on the case. How do you manage through all the frustrations and everything to just keep that attitude? Because it, it is it is pretty remarkable. So part of the reason I keep my attitude the same way is because if you do anything else, I feel it'd be a detriment to the people that I'm around. Like I work with kids, I work in the community. I, I just to create the, like if you want to be a like you can't really help out people if you want to focus so much on the negativity. You want to just kind of keep a positive outlook. You want to see the good in all situations, and then that way you can you can kind of let you can steer people a little different way. Like if you come from a place of negativity. People tend to tone you out when you say stuff. So, like, when you come with a positive attitude, a positive disposition, people listen a little bit more. So, um, like, I'm right across the street from the 18th District Police Station right now. So, like, we have an active relationship with those guys. Like, we have one guy that comes over. Like, we had a cop officer. One of the officers, he actually did uh, for our kids. He did the bingo. He called the bingo numbers out. So, and he dressed up as Santa Claus. So, like... You can't, you got to see the bad with the good and you can't just always focus on the bad because it's almost like a cop out. If if you want to say the deck stacked against you all the time, there's no reason why you want to play the hand. So sometimes you want people to play the hand because it's not a bad hand. Like it's actually, it's okay. It'll be all right. I appreciate you saying that, Jermaine. That was a very good perspective. I believe in showing some some of our kids another way. And I appreciate everything that you're doing for the kids over in Chicago. You know, I wish we we had better news on your father's case, but uh, like we said, you know, we couldn't we couldn't say that your father was a cold blooded murderer or anything like that. You know, so I, I think that hopefully something that we said was gave you a little bit of pause or a little bit of solace and knowing that you're the, the type of the, the man that your father really, really is. Um, actually, you guys' perspective, especially your perspective about how the 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 last statement he gave after he was under arrest mm-hmm. is what kind of hung hung everything up. Yeah. Me and him headed out for like three straight days on the phone. And I'm like, what was you thinking? Like, he's like, I didn't know. And like, so we kind of like, we, we had like a heart to heart come to Jesus, father, son, like, dude, you need this shit. Like you had the right to remain in the silence, but you didn't have the ability, huh? He's like, but I wasn't, he was like, I was, I was too far gone. I was like, dude, you kind of so we actually had an honest talk about it. So like that's why I was welcome with the perspective. And then he, I know, I know my dad. He wouldn't have wanted to hear that from anybody but me. So no one would have been able to bring that information to him. Like, dude, you kind of hurt yourself with this one. And so being able to suck in that, like, to take in that information, yeah, like, from you guys, they put me in a position where I can talk to my dad about, hey, this is how you got here. 
technically, when you pass that lie detector test, you implicated yourself in felony murder. You you just confessed pretty much. So like you, you they could arrest you then, but they didn't. So like he's like, wait, huh? I'm like, yeah, the fix was in. He's like, man. So yeah, that 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 polygraph test would not be uh, have been admissible. But he had said more than enough that even an investigator like myself, I probably would have taken him into custody then. And I even read a statement not too long ago that I must have missed when I was doing the investigation. He actually said in his statement that he didn't want to talk himself into prison. So, so. I read that statement too, and yeah. I because you guys gave us all the transcripts. So like, I literally like like dude. You was talking about what you talked about you did. Like, you didn't see. So, so like, and he honestly, every time, like, I can go to Pontiac right now. And he said, where you at in Pontiac? We can actually sit face-to-face, share drink. And then you look me straight in the face and be like, with the, with the straightest face, and be like, I was chasing the 25. <laughs> I was like, I just I shake my head. And that's just wow. him. He say, he say, I was trying to get it because your birthday was coming up. I was trying to get the 25. I'm like, Dude, you, you, they had you hooked like That's one thing we can all agree on. He was definitely trying to get that 25. But, you know, Jermaine, you've seen this show. And so going into it, you know, we, majority of families on the show, we actually can't help the convicts. But one of the things that you said, which is really important to, to Chris and myself is, in situations like this where we can't help the convict, we can't help the person behind bars, we hope to provide you some information to enlighten you because we know that family members, they sit at home, they stay up late at night trying to, you know, trying to figure out all these, they have so many questions and things that they need answered. And so it's really important for us that, that those questions can be answered for you and that you can read it all for yourself. You can take it all in and then you can decide from there and you can talk to, you know, your father about it. And that's important to us. So it's, it's good to hear you're having that dialogue, you're having those conversations and you're now more empowered with more information in this fight. It doesn't mean you're turning away from your father or leaning any which way. It just means now you have more information. Now you have some answers. And, and I'm also glad to hear that you and you and your father still have an open re- uh, relationship where you can talk about these things because that's never our intention. We don't ever want to try to break up a family, but I'm glad that you and your father can now have a, you, you, that you both still have a very good relationship. Uh, no matter what happened, like we couldn't change that. Like we couldn't change our relationship. Like nothing, if this entire situation didn't stop our relationship, like finding out more information about it, like I knew my dad wasn't perfect. Like, so to find out even more of his his imperfections at this point, like the most you can do is laugh about it. So like, he probably don't want to hear it, but like, but hearing it from his boy, like from his son in a voice that sounds pretty much just like his, is like, it's almost like your conscience telling you, hey dude, you, you did a little too much, but like, the fact that there's been no judgment, like people don't ju- like people don't judge me, people don't judge him. Like after like fourth grade, you'd probably stop hearing jokes. Like so, it, it, it's just something we dealt with, and it was something we, we carried on through life. Like it, like I said, the last thing he want, want, ever wanted me to do was make this be my excuse to not try to be the best version of myself. So like, I, I refuse to ever put that on him, and, and like. There's too much of that going on. One or two circumstances happen. Everybody used that as that, that, that crush to lean on forever to be like, but I went through this. And it's like, dude, you didn't have, you, you went through this. You still had a support system. You didn't have to, that didn't have to be the end of you. So. 
Are you still proud to be Lee Harris's son? Always. Every day I'm still proud to be Lee Harris's son. I actually threw a one-hitter this summer at softball, and one of the guys who saw me pitch was like, you kind of remind me of your dad. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> that is really cool, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jermaine. We really appreciate the update. God bless well, you, Jermaine. Thank, thank you guys so much. Jermaine, you take care of yourself, man. Tell your father I say what's up. Will do. Appreciate it. You should be calling me back any second. Oh, sure. <laughs> take care, man. All righty. Well, even though we weren't able to help Lee, I have to say Jermaine is like, he's such an inspirational guy and you always feel energized after you talk to him. Yeah, you he's do, man. Awesome. He's awesome. He's awesome to talk to over the phone. And, and just so the audience knows, how you hear him over this podcast is exactly the way he was when we conducted this interview. He's just a great guy to talk to. And I think he's learned so much from his father's situation that he's just gone the opposite route and everything that he does for his community and just the positive outlook he has. I just He's, he's a wonderful soul and I'm glad we got to catch up with him. I'm, I'm glad to hear they're both doing well. Well, guys, I can't believe it, but that does it for uh, season four of Reasonable Doubt. Now, we do have a bonus episode coming up, so please uh, keep watching your uh, podcast inbox for that one. That's going to be coming up really, really soon, and you definitely are going to want to check it out. But guys, uh, we did a season in COVID. Um, We sometimes wanted to kill each other. Uh, (laughs) We sometimes wanted to hug each other. We, we, did to, we did the we hugs. Did just we did the hugs. We sometimes yeah, we wanted to tease each other. We are uh, we are family, for better or for worse, there out there. Are. But I but I think that um, first and foremost, I really feel good about the fact that um, there were ten families that we came to who really wanted answers, and I think that we gave it everything we had uh, to give them the best answers that we possibly could. One hundred percent, guys. It's been it's been a great season. It's it's. Uh... This has been a really good season. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, kind of down to see it in. Well, who knows? Maybe Reasonable we'll get doubt. another. Maybe I'll be stuck with you guys another few seasons. All right. Well, for the final time, my name is Rob Rosen. I'm the creator and executive producer of Reasonable Doubt. I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And I am Detective Chris Anderson, the very handsome Detective Chris Anderson. (laughs) And I am the co-host of Reasonable Doubt. You are so dreamy, Chris. I'm just a sidekick. (laughs) Chris, for the last time this season, take us out. You know, I would do something seriously funny, but I'm not going to do it. Peace. Stay safe. 